Welcome to another public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, organised by the University of Bath and the RSA, Lord Rees-Mogg, former editor of the Times newspaper, talks about the international situation. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to what is the latest lecture in a series run by the RSA and the University of Bath on the theme of international affairs. Our speaker tonight is someone who is well-placed to comment on this issue. Lord Rees-Mogg was editor of the Times for 14 years and still writes a weekly column for the newspaper. He is credited with accurately forecasting glasnost in the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and the 1987 stock market crash. I dread to think what he will predict this evening. (laughs) It's particularly fitting that Lord Rees-Mogg is speaking here tonight as his links with the university are long-lasting. 30 years long, in fact, for he was awarded the honorary degree of Doctor of Laws by the university in 1977. We hope that he will continue his association with the university for many years to come, and we welcome this chance to hear his expertise on the topic of foreign policy and changes in world power. I'm going to now ask um, Stanley Parker from the Royal Society of Arts to introduce Lord Rees-Mogg properly. Thank you, Stanley. Uh, Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. It's a great privilege, obviously, um, for someone who is a visitor to Bath um, to introduce to you someone who needs no introduction at all. Um, He is, after all, uh, Somerset born and bred, um, left Somerset uh, for the wilds of Surrey, uh, to, um, to be schooled at Charterhouse, where, um, if I'm not being indiscreet, by the age of 15, he was already asserting his independence. <laughs> that um, didn't prevent him from getting into Balliol. It possibly helped him to get into Balliol, I don't know. Um, he, of course, he was president of the Oxford Union. He started his journalistic career with the Financial Times, Uh, And before all that long, he was the chief leader writer and assistant editor of the Financial Times. He then moved to the Sunday Times as city editor and then subsequently as business and economics editor uh, and then finally deputy editor. By the time he was editor of the Times, he had by definition an international, not merely a national reputation. He, of course, was subsequently also showing his administrative talents um, by, be- by becoming editor-in-chief of Times Newspapers Limited. I hope I've got that right. I can't use a phrase like after the Times um, because, as, our, as your vice-chancellor, our vice-chancellor has said, he still um, has a column in the Times. Um, And he also has a blog um, which is hosted by Times Online. Uh, 
And uh, for those who are interested in blogs, I, I warmly recommend it. I need hardly say that chairs and directorships followed. Um, he, was, he chaired the Arts Council of Great Britain, as it was then. I'm assuming, sir, you read PPE at Balliol. History. History. Right, so I can't make any jokes about politics, philosophy, and economics. <laughs> but as a, as a fellow history graduate, I'm absolutely delighted. Um, so, uh, that joke is over, and I'll see where I go next. Um, chairman of the, of, the, of the Arts Council of Great Britain, and then subsequently, uh, I think subsequently, uh, he also chaired the Broadcasting Standard, Standards Council, uh, as it was then. I suspect it might have changed, but... I'm not too sure about that. In terms of his professional interests, like some of our finest journalists, past and present, and I'm delighted that he's very much present, um, his interests, his professional interests, uh, uh, stride the Atlantic, um, if that's the right phrase. Um, Knighted in, no, publications first, I think, if I may, publications. Um, one particularly caught my eye. I have a, a particular interest in this one. Um, one of his titles is um, Picnics on Vesuvius. Correct. Uh, I would have thought that the uh, present uh, president of Italy uh, is at the moment far too busy to picnic on, on Vesuvius. Uh, even though his family, I would guess from his name, actually is Neapolitan or was Neapolitan. Uh, if I might intrude a personal note, I have never picnicked on Vesuvius. But, uh, and perhaps this might count as one of my youthful indiscretions, um, I have dined more than once and rather well in the shadow of Mount Etna. So I too have perhaps lived a little too dangerously. But there we are. I was only 14. And I was uh, dragged there in any case, well, not unwillingly, um, by my father and my stepmother who are on a honeymoon. But I'm not here to talk about myself. I do apologize. Um, I, I use the word independent quite deliberately. Um, he was a visiting fellow at Nuffield College. Uh, not necessarily uh, an associate, uh, and I've got to be very careful here because the RSA is strictly apolitical. Uh, not necessarily the kind of appointment one would expect from someone whose, whose political affiliations were as they were then. But, as I say, he asserts his independence, and quite rightly so. He was knighted in 1981 and accepted a life peerage in 1988. Um, and the title is sometimes given as Baron Rees-Mogg uh, of Hinton Blewett, in the county of Avon. Well, in 1988, uh, Hinton Blewett might well have been in the county of Avon, but now it's in the county of Somerset, where it presumably was before and is again, and where I've no doubt he and others think it belongs. I think that's, you know, I need to emphasize that he, he is very much um, sprung from the Somerset soil, if I can use that phrase. Uh, he asserts his independence as a crossbencher, too, um, by sitting on, 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 uh, on the crossbenches in the House of Lords. Um, his uh, voting record is more than respectable. Um, 
His voting pattern is particularly interesting, and I must be very careful what I say here. It is 91% congruent, I understand, with a very distinguished fellow of this society who does have a political affiliation. Uh, I, of course, am not going to mention either the name of the fellow or the name of the political affiliation. I could give one practical example of both his distinction and his independence, but I really don't want to take up your time. You are here to hear him and not to hear me. Uh, the Vice-Chancellor has already stolen my thunder by mentioning the Arnold Doctorate, but I don't mind repeating it. He should feel both welcome and at home, uh, I would suggest, uh, in, in this county and in this university. Now, um, he's going to speak to us for about three-quarters of an hour uh, on uh, issues in foreign policy, changes in world power. Uh, subsequent to that, he's kindly um, agreed to take a few questions. Um, do please have them ready, um, because you've heard quite enough from me. But not too many, please, because we don't have much time and I will have difficulty selecting. Uh, so, whether you're town or gown, uh, whether you're fellow or guest, please welcome William Rees-Mogg. Well, thank you very much for a very kind introduction. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I remember this university when it was really a fairly muddy road between its first couple of buildings, and it has been a wonderful experience to see uh, the rapid establishment and growth, and I think that it is probably the most successful of all the institutions which were founded in its same period. Uh, and I feel very proud to, 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 be, uh, to have been given a, a doctorate by this university. I find to my regret now that my fellow doctors, Arnold Weinstock and Roy Jenkins, no longer in this world, but I've no doubt they look down benignly on this university uh, from the next world. Uh, very, I'm very flattered to be invited to give this lecture I heard uh, another lecture in the same series uh, given by Dominic Asquith, who uh, is the ambassador in Baghdad. Uh, it was an altogether admirable lecture, and I'm only fearful that I shall not be able to live up to the standard either of knowledge or of eloquence which he set. Thinking about the subject of this extraordinarily, extraordinarily rapidly changing world, I asked myself the question, now what would one of those rare geniuses of foreign affairs think about the situation in which this country finds itself and in which uh, the European Union more broadly uh, finds itself. Uh, I then thought, well, who are uh, the great foreign ministers? 
I came to the conclusion that actually Britain hadn't had a great foreign minister in a surprisingly long time. If one takes the view that I do of the work of Lord Palmerston, uh, then one thinks that the last great foreign minister was uh, William Pitt the Younger. And um, while plainly in the 19th century uh, other European countries, uh, France with Talleyrand, Germany with Bismarck, were genuinely touched by genius in the conduct of their foreign policy. I don't think that we have had that kind of genius. And indeed, I suspect, uh, I suspect now, having thought about it, though I hadn't thought about it before, uh, that uh, foreign ministers of genius are even rarer than war ministers or prime ministers of genius. Uh, at any rate, this led me to uh, uh, think a little about uh, Bismarck, uh, who seems to me to be the most powerful influence on the 19th century, certainly among the European powers, and therefore somebody who is still influencing the 21st century. And I found in the House of Lords Library a quotation from Bismarck, which seems to me to be a very important one. He was, after all, one of those foreign ministers. I mean, he was prime minister, but he was foreign minister too, in effect, um, who one thinks of as having perceived an objective and pursued it with remarkable ruthlessness. Uh, one sees him as a man of consistency, as the man who united Germany, as the man who, to a very substantial extent, uh, is the grandfather of uh, 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 the present degree of unity of Europe. And one doesn't think of him as an empiricist responding rapidly to events. Yet, Bismarck, who achieved such an extraordinary amount in terms of straight creative policy, uh, observed politics is not a science based on logic. It is the capacity of choosing at each instant in constantly changing situations the least harmful, the most useful course. Those are actually my beliefs about foreign policy too, so that I was particularly pleased to discover that they had such an eminent authority behind them. And uh, they are the basis of uh, what I want to say. But this realism and idealism which Bismarck managed to make fit together are obviously, to a substantial degree, liable to come into conflict with each other. It is interesting uh, that Bismarck and Abraham Lincoln come at the same period of history. Uh, 
Abraham Lincoln also seems to us to be a positive hero of long-term intention. He intended to maintain the unity of the United States. He intended to destroy the institution of slavery. This is very closely parallel to the feeling of long-term intention uh, that you get with Bismarck. But at the same time, uh, the more one reads about Lincoln, the more aware one becomes that uh, he was uh, a pragmatist who was prepared to respond in whatever way he thought was going to be effective. Yes, with very clear ideas about what his long-term objectives were, but nevertheless, allowing his recognition of the reality to override any sort of foolishness that would put his whole scheme of things at risk. One may turn from Bismarck and Abraham Lincoln to the intriguing character of Tony Blair. Intriguing and important. I find President Bush less intriguing, but more important. But nevertheless, we are, after all, British, and we are therefore concerned at the performance of our own Prime Minister. Yesterday, Tony Blair made one of the statements which will surely become part of the major pattern of his history as it is perceived, as it will be taught, and as people will answer examination questions about it. That was his statement about the prospective reduction of British troops from southern, in southern Iraq. He undoubtedly sees this as part of a coherent policy uh, that and he can say this with some, at any rate, formal justice, uh, that comes as a consequence of a policy of creating a new Iraq, a new and democratic Iraq, hopefully to remain democratic, hopefully to acquire a stability which it has plainly not yet acquired. And there was a sentence or a couple of sentences in his statement to the House of Commons which I thought I would read to you. He said, in truth, this is part of a wider struggle that is taking place across the region. The Middle East faces an epochal struggle between the forces of progress and those of reaction. The same elements of extremism that try to submerge Iraq, or for that matter Afghanistan, stand in the way of a different and better future throughout the region. There you do have, I think, an example of the idealist in foreign affairs. 
he sees, which must indeed be true, which of us would disagree, uh, that if uh, Iraq could become a different kind of nation, a nation which operated because it wanted to operate, because it understood a democratic system, a nation in which the different groups, different religious groups, different ethnic groups, naturally tended to compromise with each other and cooperate with each other. Uh, a nation which had an instinctive understanding for the rule of law. Uh, if Iraq could be converted into being such a nation, uh, then we would all agree uh, that it would be a happier place for the people of Iraq to live in, an easier place for other nations, other Arab nations, but also other nations outside the Middle East, to work with. And because he has seen so vividly that there is a potential ideal Iraq, he has believed that the ideal Iraq was attainable. And uh, that is where perhaps he has been mistaken. One can see this throughout his career. And what we have to remember is that sometimes it has worked. I think it's fairly clear taking one of the minor uh, foreign interventions of his career that Sierra Leone is a better place to live in for the people of that country than it would have been if he had not decided that uh, Britain was justified in armed intervention. I think very few people probably would disagree with that. I'm not so sure about Kosovo. Uh, I'm not so sure that he had a correct analysis of the relationships in Kosovo that would follow the intervention for which he shared the responsibility. And maybe Kosovo should have been a warning to him rather than an encouragement to him. But I think it was an encouragement to him, partly because it convinced him that the new international law, which strangely enough was being taught by lawyers of a left-wing persuasion, the law that where there was a gross wrong taking place, that international law allowed intervention whether or not the United Nations wanted to intervene. Uh, the view that uh, was taken by Lord Hoffman uh, in a celebrated case. I think that Kosovo tended to confirm the feeling uh, that governments of other nations were entitled to intervene because they saw a manifest moral evil taking place, even if that obtruded into the sovereignty of another nation. So, Kosovo is a question, at any rate in my mind. Sierra Leone is not. Uh, 
Um, uh, nor is Ireland. Uh, that uh, if one looks at the long and tragic history of Ireland, the interventions made by English prime ministers have been almost uniformly disastrous. Uh, I'm a great supporter uh, of Pitt the Younger. Pitt the Younger's policy in Ireland was a disaster. Uh, I'm not even sure that uh, one can say that uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, performed as well in Ireland as on the whole she did in other areas of foreign policy. After this series of disasters, something had been started, first of all by that intriguing political figure, Willie Whitelaw, then by that uh, underrated, I suppose, figure, John Major, uh, and was followed through uh, by Bertie Ahern indeed, but very much by Tony Blair. My own view is that if Tony Blair had not given the time, the energy, and the extraordinary skill to the Irish question, which he did, that we should still be facing Ireland as a source of terrorism and of conflict between the militant groups on both sides. And Belfast, instead of being the peaceful modern city, which it now largely is, uh, would be not quite like Baghdad, but at any rate as unpleasant a place to live in as Basra. So one has this balance. One has this extraordinary degree of optimistic idealism which inspires our Prime Minister. And at the same time, one has, I think one can fairly say about Kosovo, a, an exaggerated view of what can be achieved by outside intervention and a failure to understand that initial success in interventions is only to be too likely to be followed by subsequent failure. Then one has Iraq and Afghanistan, and I suppose there... Uh, both are uncertain. We don't really know about Iraq that George Bush has got it wrong. Probably most of us here think it's more likely than not that he has. We're rather accustomed to the actual conduct of the Iraq campaign by the United States being handled in a very clumsy and inadequate way with a totally inadequate understanding of the basic culture of the Arab peoples, let alone the Iraqis. We therefore start with a natural prejudice against American policy because we've seen it fail. Yet on the other hand, I'm not sure that it's not going to work. It all depends on timing. There comes a time in this sort of situation, historically, 
when people are absolutely fed up with the anarchy and disaster in which they find themselves involved and with the damage to their society. And when a society which, and I'm sure this was apparent in the Irish negotiations, a society which has had a long period of attrition of this kind turns around and says, no, this, we've had enough, this is all over, and we're going to turn against the people who are causing this. If that coincides with the so-called surge in Baghdad, there is a significant chance, perhaps a low one, but nevertheless a significant chance, that actually at this stage the Iraq policy could work. And all of us would feel that if it did work, and if it led to a reduction in the casualties in Baghdad, <coughs> and uh, a reduction of the threat uh, from the various militant groups, uh, that that would be thoroughly welcome. Certainly change American opinion, rather. And all the people who were criticizing uh, the whole policy would find themselves put on the defensive. We don't know about Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, Peter Tapsell, uh, to whom I gave his maiden speech at the Oxford Union, and he's been speaking to very good effect ever since, uh, takes the view that Afghanistan is always the same, that uh, the disasters of British arms in Afghanistan in the 19th century, and indeed just after the First World War when his father was there, can only be repeated, and that the Afghans are very good at fighting, enjoy fighting people, and particularly enjoy fighting foreign troops. And that uh, sooner or later, uh, that Af the Afghans will turn out NATO in the same way that they turned out uh, in their final triumph, uh, the troops of the Soviet Union. That may be right too. One can see again that there is an ideal Afghanistan. There is an Afghanistan in which those splendid-looking and rather noble people uh, with a culture which is two and a half thousand years old and one might think two and a half thousand years out of date, the warrior culture of Central Asia, uh, that they one could think that they will revert to these ancient roots, or one could think that they might suddenly decide that it would be nicer and better to become a modern society. Who wouldn't wish that Afghanistan should become a modern society in that sense and adopt liberal values? They could take the whip from the Liberal Democratic Party in the House of Lords and no doubt they would run their society in a more agreeable way. But on the other hand, the likelihood of that happening does not seem to me to be very high. I think I would reverse the present view, which is that Afghanistan is looking rather good and that Iraq is looking rather bad 
I suspect that in the end there is more prospect of a peaceful solution and outcome in Iraq than in Afghanistan. But what plainly again one has is a prime minister who has taken these immensely important decisions, who has taken power into himself and not really consulted other people in any very satisfactory way, has been ruled by his optimism and his idealism and that what we have had is ten years of idealist leadership. And again we shall look and see whether that has worked out well or whether the greater degree of realism, some would say cynicism, uh, of, uh, of Bismarck, of Lincoln, might not have served the purposes which Tony Blair so undoubtedly sincerely holds considerably better. I don't think we should underestimate, though it's perhaps even more tempting, uh, the idealism of American policy. Indeed, when one reads what the neocons write, they seem almost to be dotty idealists. And clearly there is in neoconservative thought in the United States an element of cynicism. Uh, there are people who climbed on board the bandwagon for various reasons. One is that for a while it was capable of winning elections which is always influential with the politicians. Uh, another, that uh, there were large contracts to be given out. And yet another was that the United States has a very real problem about the future of oil supplies and that neoconservative attitudes towards uh, Iraq uh, seem to fit in with securing uh, the continued supply of oil to the United States. Nevertheless, it was the neocons who had this idea that the Middle East would never settle down to a peaceful and prosperous future unless you could create a series of Middle Eastern democracies. One may think that that was an extremely naive idea. But even if it was naive, it was essentially idealist. And that's important, if only because idealists have an unnatural degree of confidence in their own judgments and their own policies. If you are totally convinced that the world can only be made to work if the people of the Middle East settle down into forming a group of nice little Switzerlands, then you will devote yourself to turning Iraq into Switzerland because you believe that that is both possible and desirable. And indeed, who would disagree 
that it was or, or would be desirable. And these fantasies can affect even uh, Middle Eastern statesmen themselves, whom one might think ought to have a clearer idea about the nature of the people they were trying to govern. Um, I used to know moderately well, as a journalist, uh, President Sadat of Egypt, a man whom I very much respected and very much liked and whose death, I think, was a tragedy for the whole of the Middle Eastern area. And the man who created such peace as has been created uh, between Israel and the Arab countries. And uh, he was talking to me in a sort of relaxed way and saying what he really believed and thought. And he said that the country which he had visited, which he admired most, was Austria. That they had a very high culture, that that was beautiful, uh, that they lived quietly with each other, uh, that uh, they believed in peaceful life, and that they had adopted a kind of social democratic government of a kind which more or less looked after everybody and treated everybody rather well. That has to be admitted is what you could call a post-war view of Austria rather than a pre-war view of Austria. And he said that what he hoped to achieve was to create a Cairo which was like a Vienna on the Nile. And um, if one sometimes thinks that Tony Blair or President Bush have illusions about the degree to which you can take the cultures of other nations and change them, then at least those were illusions which were shared by President Sadat. If one looks at the questions which now confront us, the Middle East is, I think, typical of questions which are going to arise outside the Middle East. Uh, the 19th century had the problem of creating nations. France was created partly by Napoleon, partly by the Revolution, partly by the Restoration and the various forms of government which France had in the 19th century. Germany was united, Italy was united. Uh, the uh, uh, nations of the world, as they now are, are not wholly, but partly 19th century creations. But we have now to look at a quite different problem. The nations themselves are still there. Most of them work reasonably well. I mean, if you take a, a, a view of, uh, of the current state of Germany, Germany is a well-governed, well-run country. It could be better. Certain things go wrong, become rather stick in the mud about uh, making social change. But Germany is essentially 
a functioning nation of a highly respectable kind. And uh, so uh, other countries which, uh, uh, like Japan, have made an extraordinary success of their post-war economic development. But we are all, as nations, facing new challenges, uh, challenges which we are not quite sure that we shall be able to meet. This is as true of Britain, I think, as it's true of uh, European colleagues, as it is true of uh, uh, the Asian countries themselves. Uh, the challenge is essentially the challenge of globalization, and it has a considerable number of different aspects. There is the issue of global finance. This has produced considerable benefits for our country. Uh, the City of London almost one might think by accident, has become not only the leading financial city of Europe, but also is challenging New York uh, for the role of the leading financial capital of the world. Uh, certainly there were steps which were taken. Big Bang was perhaps the most important but also the general deregulation of the early 1980s, which made that more likely to happen. But um, we seem to have acquired a huge historic asset in one of our fits of national absent-mindedness. <laughs> also, uh, the World Wide Web has facilitated the development of a global financial system in which those cities which have a core role in their own areas have developed huge advantages. No doubt there are problems, uh, problems that nobody can afford to live in London except the people who are employed in the city. And uh, that's a pity on the other hand, uh, I think the figure is that 12% of our national income and probably more than that of our overseas earnings uh, is being earned by the city and that this has created a decade of prosperity for the country as a whole which would not have happened if uh, the city had been less successful as a financial centre. There is the very difficult problem of global energy supplies. The contrast is very obvious between uh, uh, the problem of global warming, which requires uh, a bringing together of the policy of countries, each required to make sacrifices which so far very few countries have been willing to make, and at the same time uh, uh, is based on uh, the problem of an energy resource 
which is plainly running out. It's a very odd situation that uh, we're using far too much oil, both because of the damage that that is doing uh, to the global environment and because in 50 years' time there's not going to be much oil left. And we have to find a way of reconciling uh, the... uh, uh, of creating a willingness to reduce the consumption of oil, which will spread out the amount of time which the world has before we find other resources. Those are the two globalization problems as such. But the globe has also been shifting. Uh, There is the swing of the continents. A fascinating development which is taking place, has taken place, more rapidly than, I think, any comparable development in human history, in which the core area of wealth creation has switched from what you could call the North Atlantic, though I'm not suggesting that every motor car in the world is made in Iceland, uh, to the... uh, Asian block of countries, China, India, and the smaller Asian countries which have had their takeoff already. The Singapore zone, as one might call it, because Singapore is somewhere near the middle of it. That poses huge problems simply because there is a production capacity at a cost level which means that there is little real requirement for the manufacturing capacity of the United States or Western Europe. If you eliminated now the whole of the uh, automobile production capacity of Europe, what would it be? couple of years before that capacity had been replaced with higher efficiencies and at lower cost uh, by the Asian powers. It is that sort of a position. Uh, Many of the costs are 30%, that sort of level, Uh, and there is the same pressure on the United States. The United States General Motors is halfway bust. Ford is three-quarters way bust. Chrysler is for sale on the block. Anyone want to bid for Chrysler? Anyone in this room like to have Chrysler? Couldn't couldn't imagine anybody wanting to take on uh, that uh, guaranteed way of losing money. So the swing of continents has destroyed huge area of earning power of all our nations. As part of the swing of of continents, there is the weakness of the United States. This is an extraordinarily interesting counterpart to what is happening in China 
and indeed in India, that what the United States now looks like is the British British Empire of a hundred years ago. Still enormously powerful, still with very strong military capacity. I think we still had a two-ocean standard in 1907, uh, which meant that uh, our Navy was big enough to fight a war simultaneously in the Atlantic and the Pacific. And uh, the United States is now in the position of having the equivalent of a two-ocean standard for the whole of their defense forces. But... Their economy is running down. They have a deficit of, I think, $900 billion. No doubt they will be the first country on earth to have an external deficit of a trillion dollars. That's sort of round the corner for them. And just as you could see in 1907 that Britain had passed its peak, that we could not dominate the world in the way in which we were still able to dominate it. That there were challenges, challenges, for instance, from Germany, uh, which we were not going to be able to match. And that while you couldn't be sure whether the British Empire would, uh, as it did, Uh, disintegrate in 1950 or whether conceivably it would disintegrate earlier as it might have done or more likely that it would disintegrate in the absence of the two world wars sometime around 1980 you knew very well that this was the trend of history and that that trend was not going to be reversed and don't we actually know that about the United States now that What are they, 300 million people? A lot of Mexicans. A lot of Canadians to the north of them, which is nice. I'm not sure that the Mexicans are going to be a help because they're bound to require a lot of assistance if uh, they're to get their economy to a modern level. With a close relationship, but also with a difficult relationship with uh, a Europe which has virtually no defence capacity. I mean, European defence is a total mess. Uh, But nevertheless, economically, it's very important. uh, uh, In terms of the numbers of the population, the largest advanced economy on Earth. So there is a good relationship there, but at the same time, as we all know, there's a pretty bad one. And that... uh, European attitudes towards the United States could be a great deal more helpful than they are. And there is all the time this feeling about the United States that they have commitments which exceed their capacity. I remember how strongly one felt that in immediate post-war Britain, that people were saying well, we must get out of our commitments. We cannot possibly be responsible for the whole world from Aden to Singapore. The relief when uh, the Labour government 
decided to get out of India, even though it was done in a very unsatisfactory way, far too fast and without sufficient preparation and so on. We had the sterling balances. We owed everybody money. We couldn't earn our own living in an effective way. And this is where the United States is going. And they have not yet solved the problems that we took about 100 years to solve. It's jolly nice being British now, a reasonable economy, reasonable society, a reasonable system, reasonable relationships. But it wasn't very nice being British in the 1950s. It wasn't very nice being British in the 1970s or in some of the 1980s. We have got through to a new balance. The United States seems to me manifestly has to do so. How making guesses is it all going to work out? I think we shall in fact find that there is a closer relationship over time between the United States and Europe because we have cultures which relate very closely to each other. We have uh, industries which are compatible and about the same levels of development. Some American industries at a more advanced level of development. American technology still, to a significant extent, the envy of the world. What I think we shall get is three economies which have either a national sense or possibly a multinational sense and have about a population of a billion. If you put together the 300 million Americans, the whatever it is, it's going up to 100 million, I think, Mexicans, the 25 million Canadians, you have a chunk of 400, 450 million in North America. You have a chunk already of about 500 million in Europe. So we are looking at an industrial economy uh, of an advanced kind based on the North Atlantic and relating on to uh, Japan and to, and, and, and to Australia, uh, which is of the right size. China is already over a billion. India is coming up to a billion. India is proving to be good at things which China isn't equally good at, and India has a more advanced constitution, more democratic constitution, and has different cultural relations with the kind of, what you could call, Atlantica, uh, which I think is liable to come into existence in the course of this century. There will be the great problem of oil, to which no one as yet knows the answer, though it seems to me more or less inevitable that uh, we shall have 
an increase in reliance on nuclear power. So I think that a new world will emerge. I think it will be quite a lot different from the world in which we are currently living. I think it will be beaten out by a lot of realism as well as idealism. And one of the things I rather regret is that the exaggerated idealisms of the Blair-Bush combination will discredit idealism to a greater degree than seems to me to be desirable. They wanted to do good. They had great flaws of perception, great flaws of execution, but they undoubtedly wanted to do good, wanted to do good with elements of self-interest too, but that's always the case in political affairs. And isn't it sad that they will be going down to history as people who recklessly disturbed what might otherwise have been a more peaceful area. Thank you very much.